are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Third Series and was recorded on September 12, 2019 at the Centre d'études Maghrebina Tunis Semat. In this episode, Jacob Mandi, Associate Professor at Colgate University in the Peace and Conflict Studies program, talks about why is the everywhere war mostly in the Middle East and North Africa? Thank you uh, for coming. It's quite a turnout uh, today. Many thanks to the great team at Seymat, Maryam, Ola, of course, the Madeira herself, uh, Larissa Shomak. Today's talk comes out of uh, what is kind of a triptych of three works. Uh, My co-authored book on Western Sahara, my book on Algeria was just mentioned, and then my new book on Libya, uh, and trying to put things in kind of a bigger context of looking at, you know, one is a um, internationalized, you could call it secessionist disputes or pro-independence movement in Western Sahara. One is a uh, civil war in the 1990s that is infused with lots of terrorism. Uh, And then one is, again, uh, post-2011, a very, very internationalized set of civil wars in Libya. Um, So these three conflicts uh, that I've been thinking about and wanting to think about them in a broader context, what what are some ways that we could begin to constellate these things together? Um, And this is part of a kind of also a triptych of articles and chapters uh, one is coming out in a forthcoming volume uh, in honor of Mike Davis that my colleague is co-editing, and that's about the international political economy of what might be called U.S. hegemony, U.S. imperialism, or U.S. supremacy. Uh, I tend to use the term North Atlantic more than just U.S., and you'll see that in this talk. Uh, and then another article that's now been accepted in the journal Civil, Civil Wars Um, about uh, what I will come to is a very provocative point in uh, this lecture. I think you know you'll see the slide and, and you'll you're going to go, what is he talking about? Uh, and I think this is going to happen a couple times, right? I think one of the things that we try to do, right, as scholars, is to challenge conventional wisdom, right? And I think I'm going to try to do that a couple times today, right? And I don't think you're necessarily going to agree with me, but hopefully I can drag you along and say, okay, I understand how you got to that point. <laughs> I'm just not sure I agree with you, right? So that's going to be a lot of what I'm doing today. Um, so the first stop, right, is the everywhere war, right? So what is this? Uh, well, I, you know, the discourse of it, I think, is, you know, we could say everywhere, right? Uh, it's even in a lot of sort of pre-9-11 thinking about new terrains of conflict, right? Uh, this, of course, could go back to the, the Cold War, if you wanted, and the idea of proxy wars, right? Mary Caldor's idea of new wars in the 1990s is kind of these transnationalized wars of state unmaking. So what is, what is war in the text of globalization, right? Uh, and globalization, creeps into the post-9-11 discourses as well, uh, right? So Hart and Negri, their follow-up to Empire uh, in the, the book that followed that, right? They talk about a global state of war. The geographer Derek Gregory has an article that this is basically kind of riffing on, right? Called the Everywhere War in 2011. 
Uh, Jeremy Scahill, a journalist, right, wrote a book about uh, Blackwater, and then a, another one about the world is a battlefield. Right, there's a documentary based on that. Critical political economists, you know, the global war, uh, Blair and Morton, right, or a worldwide windless war, as journalist Nick Terse uh, calls it, right. Uh, this is also an official state discourse, right. I found this sort of funny U.S. State Department educational guide for American teachers. Like, how do you, how do you get kids to come adjusted to this new reality of the war on terror, right? And so we must understand this is a war without borders, right? Um, even today, the U.S. National Defense Strategy, uh, authored by our former uh, <laughs> head of the Defense Department, uh, Mattis, uh, you know, that defense strategy argues that the homeland is not the homeland. Right, the homeland is everywhere, right? So these sort of like these geographical blurring, right? The geographical blurring also occurs in such practices. We tend to think about drone warfare as the ultimate global everywhere kind of warfare, um, special operations, extraordinary rendition, things of that sort, right? So someone can be, uh, you know, Khalid Masri is, you know, arrested in uh, Italy. You know, he's rendered uh, to another country to be tortured, that sort of thing. Right. So we tend to think of this as uh, a world uh, that is, uh, is and can be everywhere. Right. There's also a lot of cartography that goes along with this. Um, so there was a famous book called The Pentagon's New Map, um, where uh, the bottom point there are arcs of instability. Right. You should really Google this because it's really kind of funny but also frightening. Uh, these sort of imaginative geographies you get uh, of this new security environment, right? That you can somehow constellate uh, the Sahel with Afghanistan by way of Somalia, right? That, that's an arc of instability, right? So how does, how does that geography happen? Um, but also uh, in a lot of scholarly writing, right? Steve Naiva has written about the global war on terrorism as a kind of anti-cartography. Uh, Antoine Bousquet has uh, written a book called The Eye of War, in which he talks about omnivoyant war, that is war that can see everywhere. Uh, we have, of course, analysis of US military bases like this map here from uh, Smithsonian Magazine, but put together by the Costs of War Project at Brown University, right? It gives you this sort of overwhelming feeling that, oh my god, the United States is everywhere, right? the war is everywhere. Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and then a lot of recent revelations about, uh, you know, the U.S. conducting each year military trainings in, you know, over 100 countries, perhaps uh, close to uh, a supermajority of, of world countries have at one point, in, you know, hosted U.S. special forces trainings, right? So it does kind of seem like, right, it's an everywhere war. Uh, so what are the discursive functions, right, of thinking in these terms, right, uh, that, you know, the Everywhere War is Yemen or it's an Ariana Grande concert, right, Th those sort of things, right. Uh, and when I teach a course on terrorism, right, uh, there tends to be, when I ask students, okay, what's your definition of terrorism, right, the, the idea of randomness, unpredictability is often in a lot of people's uh, understandings of terrorism, that sort of thing. We, we think about empowering these ideas Right, or these new security regimes, right, new political economies of order, and that sort of thing. Right? What, are we, what are we giving away by giving into the idea of the everywhere war is kind of the question. But there's also a more basic question, right? the everywhere war, right? or is the everywhere war really everywhere? Right? If you take a, like a course on environmental uh, justice movements, right? uh, 
is pollution everywhere? Well, you know, in a way, but in a lot of cases, pollution is, is very cited, right? Pollution is cited in communities of color in the United States, right? Or poor countries are going to bear the burdens of global warming more than others, right? So this is kind of the question I want to ask with the everywhere war. Like, who's bearing the burden of this, right, and why? Why is this happening? Um, so how do we locate the everywhere war? Um, so I started looking at some of the quantitative data Right, um, and this might be uh, a bit difficult to decode if it isn't very clear. Uh, but so uh, the best data we have on armed conflict or basically organized violence, as it could be broadly construed, uh, shows a, a very uh, unequal distribution of armed conflict, especially since the Arab Spring, since 2011. Uh, in what they define as the Middle East, and this excludes North Africa uh, in their definition, right? So the Middle East has overtaken Asia, right? And, and in their definition, right, Pakistan and Afghanistan are Asia, right? So again, uh, your, uh, how you categorize these things, right? I'm gonna be talking a lot about categorization geographically in this talk, right? So, uh, but uh, at least today, since the Arab Spring, we can say, well, the everywhere war pretty much appears to be uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and if we were to think more broadly about North Africa and into the Western Himalayas as the Middle East, we would definitely get an even more disturbing picture of where things actually are. Sadly, Syria and Afghanistan now stand as the second and third deadliest conflicts uh, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, Iraq is not far behind, and Sudan, which has had multiple different kinds of conflicts, is there as well. Right, so we do need to think about uh, why, why is conflict clustering uh, in the broader Middle East in this way. I, in my article in Civil Wars, I got a question, of course, well, what about the Democratic Republic of Congo? Right? Uh, haven't they had two to five million deaths? Right? Uh, and this gets down to a lot of how we measure uh, fatalities in war in the Congo. It's, a, it's about excess deaths. That is, uh, epidemiologists estimate how many people should be alive, and then they look at how many people are alive, and they say, well, because the war broke out, we have less people alive. So those are considered excess deaths, right? This data just measures people who are killed in acts of violence, so political homicide uh, on upwards, right? And again, what this is also contributing to, right, the rise of uh, conflicts, the spike in conflicts after the Arab Spring, um, is a, a really a kind of a turnaround, right? In 2011, when I started teaching a piece in conflict studies, right, the big debate was, uh, you know, the end of war, right? That war seemed to be on the way out, that it wasn't happening as much, wars weren't as deadly, and then all of a sudden we get this huge reversal of those trends. Hopefully that's, that's dying down, uh, but again, uh, what has been happening in the Middle East uh, has had a significant impact on our ability to sort of forecast uh, trends about what's going on in the world, right? Uh, over here, right, this large uh, spike, that's Rwanda, uh, the genocide there, but if you go looking closer, post-2011, that's uh, the wars of the Arab Spring, or if you want a deeper analysis, you could say wars of the Great Recession, right? Looking at it in a more global perspective, right? Um, so what about terrorism? Where is terrorism happening? Well, um, uh, terrorism is obviously a, a tricky term. We should use it uh, very, very carefully, right? 
uh, but the best data we have on terrorist events, right, this isn't even just people who died, right? If you try to blow up, you know, New York, uh, I don't know, Times Square, uh, and you don't succeed, that this is still gonna end up in the data set, right? So these are terrorist events, right? A much uh, broader categorization, right? So from 2001 to 2016, right, 37% of terrorist events are in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, that data set does not consider Afghanistan and Pakistan as part of North Africa, but if you include those, right, which is a huge epicenter of this activity, uh, then it goes to two-thirds, right? So most terrorism is Middle Eastern. Right? What about refugees, right? Who's suffering from the everywhere war, right? So you get, uh, you look at what's been going on, there's been a 350% growth in persons of concern, right? The UNHCR labels refugees as persons of concern, right? A huge percentage of that uh, is in the Middle East and North Africa. And keeping in mind that Palestinians are managed under a different refugee mandate, right? So the millions of Palestinians abroad or in the occupied territories, right, aren't even in those, those numbers, right? Drones, special forces, right, where is that happening? Well, no surprise, right, the only places where there's actually been lethal drone strikes, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, and Libya, at least by the United States, right, in those countries, right? Drone bases outside of the MENA, well, they're, they're basically kind of around the MENA, or the sort of exceptionary case here is the Philippines, which is kind of interesting. And then uh, special forces, where they actually conduct combat operations, right? We hear these numbers, oh, special forces operating in a majority of world countries, right? Well, where are they actually conducting what they like to call kinetic operations, right? Where they actually kill people. Well, that's the Middle East, Sahara Sahel, and uh, Somalia. What about U.S. military expenditures, right? The United States is now looking at a $6 trillion bill for the war in Iraq, right? So think about where the money is going. Afghanistan managed to cost the U.S. more than the Marshall Plan by uh, 2014, right? So we've spent more on counterterrorism and state building in Afghanistan than we spent on reconstructing Europe after World War II, right? And, and how's that going? Well, 2018 was the deadliest year for Afghans, and it saw the most U.S. bombing. What about defending the world's energy supply, right? That's one of the reasons that's often given for why is the United States in the Middle East so intensively? Well, one think tank working group uh, estimates that it's a 81 billion annual commitment to defending the global circulation of hydrocarbons, right? If we look at U.S. casualties, right, uh, the vast majority are in Iraq and Afghanistan. And these are just other figures that help us contextualize military spending, right, in the name of the war on terror, which, as we've seen, is mostly in the Middle East, in the constant inflation adjusted, we can see that this war now outpaces Vietnam, Korea, all other post-World War II U.S. commitments. Right. So this is a significant military outlay. It's you know, not quite World War II levels, right? but there's interesting dynamics within U.S. military spending that I'm trying to get a handle on right? that sort of creates these perpetual cycles of growth. Right, beyond the sort of politics of, you know, why are U.S. military fighters, why is there a part made in every U.S. state, right? Well, that obviously secures congressional approval of new weapon systems, things like that. If the everywhere war is mostly in the Middle East and North Africa, then why would we get this sort of geographical concentration of organized violence, both internally driven and externally primed? So we have a lot of different theories. I think you're 
familiar with a lot of these. Of course, the most famous or infamous are going to be the sort of culturalist, neo-orientalist accounts. I'm not allowed to say the first name. It's become a kind of Voldemort thing in the field. But uh, Timur Koran is not, he's not writing about violence necessarily, but he's writing about Middle East underdevelopment, right? And he's locating that in civilizational features, right? right? There's also classical sort of geopolitical theories, right? There's just something about this part of the world, you know, irrespective of who lives there, there's something about the center of, you know, the world island, uh, as it's often been called, right? Eurasia, right? Socio-historical legacies, right, of the... Ottoman Persian zone, there's something about state building in this region that has led to these kind of instabilities. Of course, the Rantier theories, a uh, high number of oil states that don't tax their populations, they give them sort of these really great welfare states and they don't ask for much, much out of them, right? And they tend to actually coerce them. Comparative politics, international relations, different kinds of theories here as well. Uh, no regional hegemon has ever emerged or been al allowed to emerge, if you follow Ian Lustig's arguments. Colgan has written recently about the weird combination of authoritarian republics, not monarchies, and petroleum-based aggression, right? So why is it that the, the republics in the Middle East tend to be more aggressive than the monarchies, that sort of thing, right? There's extrinsic theories, right? This is a very difficult division to maintain. Imagine like a lot of ways that we could not say that either of these are entirely intrinsic or extrinsic, right? But trying to get sort of a lay of the land here, right? So foreign arms sales, petrodollar recycling, right? So what are the sort of outside things that could be driving Middle Eastern conflict, right? So here's the Ian Lustig, right? The Middle East was made unstable by European powers uh, in order to prevent a hegemon from emerging or a super state, right? An Arab super state was one of the things that US policy was very much aimed at preventing during the Cold War, right? We have the oil for security sort of narratives in various different forms, more critical versions from Mitchell, a more straightforward historical one from Jones, and then Colgan has an unpublished paper that looks at it from a political science data crunching kind of thing. Critical political economists have talked about controlling the global oil spigot, right? So if the U.S. is in the Middle East, we can have some influence on oil supply, right? Other people even put it more brutally, right? We invaded Iraq so that Exxon could control or, you know, make a lot of money, right? Or Halliburton could make a lot of money, that sort of thing. More critical sort of um, theories from Campbell or Pouar, right? This is about U.S. power and identity, right? We create monsters that we have to defeat, right? So you other the Middle East so that we can extract the oil and we can drive like really big cars and, it's, and keep the oil price levels that make that possible. Right? And then of course we do debates about global warming as a possible factor. Okay, so here's why I don't like either approach necessarily. Uh, essential, critiques of essentialism, I think we all kind of are familiar with, right? We've all read Edward Said and, and we understand why essentialism is, is pretty much a bad way. There's also kind of a logical thing to think about here, right? Because uh, if you assume that there's a socio-cultural essence to the Middle East and then you try to go out and find evidence of it, well, you're just basically begging the question. You've already assumed that's what you've attempted to prove, right? So you're just going to go out and look for evidence of that socio-cultural difference, and lo and behold, you found it. Right? This is the same problem with gender and sexuality, you know, so on and so forth. My critique of the, the more pragmatic approach, which you tend to get in different variants, right, is like a lot of people want to prove that the Middle East isn't exceptional at all, it's just like every other part of the world, but then that begs the question, well, why are we analyzing the Middle East? 
what is this concept doing if we're spending a lot of time trying to prove that it's not exceptional or interesting at all? As a, a funny side note, I was once at a workshop and someone had put up a bunch of data right, about democracy in the Middle East. And at that time, before recent events in Turkey, uh, Israel and Turkey were not included. And we're like, what happened to Israel and Turkey? Like, weren't they in the Middle East? And so, oh no, they're democracies. So I guess they're, they're out of the Middle East at this point or something. So it was, all, it was a, little bit, a little bit strange for us, right? But I think there's also a more common with a lot of these theories is that they tend to think that these are unrelated questions. What is the Middle East and why is there so much war in the Middle East? Are these really separate questions? And here's the, the provocative points, right? That might be a, a bit confusing, I'll try to explain. So what if the Middle East has actually been constituted by the forms of violence that we say are an effect of the Middle East? The Middle East is what? Okay, what if we treated the Middle East as something that has been made rather than something that's been found? That's the argument that I'm going to be pursuing. This idea of what is making the Middle East, who, who made the Middle East, that sort of thing. Uh, but given there's a strong emphasis here on war making, organized violence, I'm gonna make a more provocative claim that those processes are actually central. So found approaches to the Middle East, again, we encounter a lot of this question begging sort of stuff, right? So, Stanford published an interesting volume, edited volume of geographers confronting this question, is there a Middle East? Uh, and the consensus in that book tends to be that either kind of pragmatic, well, we've been using the term for so long, we might as well just like, keep using it, that sort of thing, or you know, that it is a world cultural region. If you take the world from Mauritania to Afghanistan, you basically have a land and a population that's the same size as Latin America, right? So is it un unreasonable to think in those terms? Uh, if we think of South America as a unit, is the Middle East a unit? You know, that sort of thing. But of course, the Middle East, as we all know, whenever we talk about the Middle East, is, well, what is the Middle East? Where does it begin? Where does it end? So this is the, the boundary problem. What are the boundaries of the Middle East? So the official geographer of the U.S. Department of State in 1964 published an interesting little pamphlet or book, The Middle East, an indefinable region. And so here we have basically Bangladesh to Morocco is potentially the Middle East, uh, but it's undefinable, right? And I'll talk in a minute about why this is, this is kind of interesting uh, that we get this sort of very broad uh, perspective, right? But again, in thinking about the boundary problem of the Middle East, it's not just sort of like what's inside and what's outside the Middle East, right? So why is Mauritania often considered sub-Saharan Africa when the majority of its population is Arab Muslim? Right. That, these sorts of questions. You know, is Sudan more Middle Eastern now that they've had the divorce and gotten rid of you know, the African populations in the South? Right. These sorts of questions. So instead of asking what is the Middle East, right, the argument is uh, we should be asking what produces the Middle East. How do we, how do we make it? Right? So I have two inspirational quotes for us. One is it's a bit difficult because it's Judith Butler. Uh, but uh, from Gender Trouble, uh, she has a famous line. Uh, there is no gender identity behind expressions of gender. That identity is performatively constituted by the very expressions that are said to be its results. Right, so again, this is the performative term in a lot of different approaches to social sciences. Right, and I'm, I'm thinking about the Middle East as something that has to be performed, right, in order to become 
to merge and to be reproduced, right? Uh, David Harvey, I think, has a, a more straightforward quote uh, that's often used, right? If we want to think about what space is, we should be thinking about human practice with respect to it, right? So we want to think about what the Middle East is. Well, let's think about like what, what, is, what are Middle Easternizing practices, right? What are the practices that make the Middle East, right? Um, here's another analogy, right? This is Tim Mitchell's famous argument on the state, right? So what is the state? What's the, what's the boundary between the state and society? Uh, is there a boundary? Uh, Althusser had sort of upset everyone by saying everything is the state, right? The church is the state, the school is the state, right? Uh, feminists will tell you that the, the house is the state, right? The state is just a big house, right? Uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so this is why I take from uh, Mitchell to sort of make an interesting uh, analogy, right? Uh, the institutional mechanisms of modern political order are never confined within the limits of what is called the state. The boundary of the state or political system never marks a real exterior. You can probably see where this is going to go with the Middle East, right? Producing and maintaining the distinctions between state and society is itself a mechanism that generates resources of power, and the arrangements that produce the apparent separateness of the state create the abstract effect of agency, or what he calls the state effect. Right? So let's apply this to the Middle East. Right? Though important, the purported boundaries of regions, right, and I'm not even just talking about the Middle East, I'm talking about the idea, the geographical idea of regions, right? They never mark a true or ultimate exterior, right? inside, outside, you know, that sort of thing, right? Uh, the Middle East is as much made in Washington, D.C., you know, it could be said is Washington, D.C., as the Middle East itself, right? Because the arrangements, practices, and processes that create the appearance or effect of regions are never confined within the region alone. They're never, they're never sort of freestanding, agentic, spatial entities, right? So this abstract sense of regional agency, right? And this gets back to the essentialist sort of claim. Oh, the Middle East is a, a sociocultural thing with its own kind of uh, powers and that sort of thing, right? No, that's just an effect of all of these uh, arrangements that give us this idea that there is a Middle East, right? Um, and I think the last, the last point is also really important, right? The ability to effectively designate the inside-outside, right? And this can apply to all sorts of things in our lives, right? But controlling boundaries, right? Policing boundaries. Uh, what's inside-outside a state? What's inside-outside a region? What's the core? What's the periphery, right? Is itself a form of dis discursive power. Right? So when I teach Introduction to Middle East Studies, right, one of the first activities we do, of course, is like, well, okay, here's a, here's a blank world map. Color in or circle the Middle East, right? So the core is indefinitely uh, usually, though sometimes not always, uh, the Arabian Peninsula, right? So, well, what does that mean that that's the core? Is that, uh, uh, what, what is that doing, right? Um, and I'm sure the Saudis like to think of themselves as the core of the region, right? Because that gives them power, right? Uh, and it's also power given to them by the outside world, also designating that as the core of the region, right? So think about it in those terms, right? Or the effects of being on the margins, right? Mauritania is on the margins of the so what does that uh, what does that do discursively, right? Um, so the Middle East is a space of violent exception. Right? So this is going to be my definition of the Middle East, constituted as such as violent exception by forms of violence that are said to be an effect of its existence. Right. So I'm going to be thinking about violence as an important practice that um, is a part of the emergence and reproduction of the Middle East, not just as an idea, but like as an actual thing, 
right? Uh, and I'm going to be looking at uh, three things here, but this is certainly not the limit, right? And I, and I wouldn't say that uh, violence is the only, or violent activities are the only kinds of activities that produce in the Middle East, right? There's all sorts of things, but I want to focus on this because it gets back to this question about the everywhere war, right? So epistemic violence, I think, you know, to even impose the idea of the Middle East is an act of epistemic violence, right? We need to recognize it as such, right? And it's an act of epistemic violence uh, that emerges in late colonialism, British colonialism mainly, right? So it's an imposed geography and identity, right? Uh, and we'll get up to a critique of Middle East studies um, as well, right? Structural violence of imperialism, extractive capital accumulation. Uh, I'll be discussing that briefly, how that plays into the emergence and reproduction of the Middle East. And then the physical violence of permanent war and hyper-militarization. So in other words, right, David Harvey's also famous for this concept of the spatial fix, right? So that when states or capitalism run into problems, they often find solutions by creating new geographies or basically relocating certain things, right? Um, the problem with capitalism in the 1950s and 1960s was labor was just too damn strong, right? So what do we do to labor? Uh, we push it out to other parts of the world, right? So that's the spatial fix uh, to the labor problem of capital, um, uh, what we call outsourcing now in the United States, right? So in Harvey's argument, right, East Asia is a spatial fix for certain crises of capitalism, right? And one could say today that China's Belt and Road Initiative is an attempt to achieve a spatial fix for certain problems that are coming down the road for China, right? Certain problems related to what do you do with all the excess capital that you have, right? Where do you invest it? How do you invest it, right? How do you create spaces of investment, right? So what I think is going on in the Middle East, um, and I, I'm a strong uh, proponent of the idea of a kind of late emergence of the Middle East, and uh, we can talk about that later, but it's a bit of a complicated argument that I'm not even sure I can, I can sell yet. Um, but the idea that I think the Middle East became what it is, right, this sort of uh, space of exception, I've called it, largely in the 60s and 70s, right? So this is when the Middle East becomes what I think it is, right? Um, and it's served as a kind of spatial fix to uh, different crises. One, a kind of political crisis of North Atlantic hegemony. Uh, two, uh, economic crises. And I'll talk about what those are, right? So. So let's talk about the Middle East as violence, or the Middle East is violence, right? So that's the provocative title of my forthcoming paper. Um, yeah, the peer reviewers didn't like that. Um, what do you say? We can talk about the, <laughs> the discussion. Uh, they say all sorts of things, peer reviewers. Okay, so the interesting thing about the Middle East is, um, uh, I think in its original articulation, it almost kind of made more sense. If you think about uh, the colonial world being managed through the idea of the Orient or the, the East, right? Asian uh, imperialism in Asia by the North Atlantic powers, right? So the Middle East, when it was originally formulated, was India, or sort of the broader idea of India, right? So you can imagine near, middle, far, east, right? Proche, Moyen, Extreme, uh, in French diplomatic language, right? So the middle was, was more India uh, and that sort of thing. Right. So this is part of the epistemic violence of designating, imposing geographies, that sort of thing. Uh, but you know, again, a very kind of weird thing is that the Middle East begins to move. <laughs> it starts to like, migrate uh, towards the West. 
right, from World War I to the early Cold War, right? So again, right, and these geographies are not, right, they're not geographies that emanate from within the region, right? Uh, a good counterpoint is Latin, Latin America, right? The forging of Latin American identity was partially uh, in response to Spanish imperialism, right? So you could argue that Latin America is much more of an indigenously generated idea, but of course it's an idea generated by colonial elites, right, that became the leaders of the, the independent countries, right? So it's indigenous in a kind of uh, top-down way, right? But the Middle East, I think, really grows in importance, uh, and the idea begins to take more of a solid shape in terms that we recognize in the presence, right? Uh, in the 1950s and 60s, right, right at the point where the North Atlantic world is trying to consolidate its post-World War II hegemony, right? So the Middle East is going to become this sort of spatial fix uh, for those processes, right? Um, but what I think is really interesting is that in order to justify what is clearly an arbitrary and inconsistently de defined region, right, is a kind of racialization of, of the region, right? So, so the Middle East stops being a geography and starts being an identity. Right? And this is why I think is really important. And here I think Middle East studies is actually really kind of uh, important in a kind of, you know, I don't want to say diabolical kind of way, but uh, in terms of reifying this idea, right, what more reification do you need than in the United States, a bunch of people get together in 1966 and found the Middle East Studies Association. Right? So now you have a bunch of scholars who are dedicated to this idea of the Middle East. Right? Well, what defines the Middle East? Well, if you define it as a world cultural region, you know, that again, bring, you've brought essentialism back into all of this. Right? So what about the structural violence right, of imperialism and capital accumulation through violent extraction? Uh, well, uh, we know that in the Middle East that it is still very much uh, organized, reproduced, right, through these sort of asymmetric uh, relationships. Uh, the ones with France tend to be uh, the most exaggerated, uh, though we can also see a very much uh, neocolonial relationship with the United States and Saudi Arabia, right? Um, so there you have durable continuities uh, between uh, colonial and neocolonial sorts of arrangements that have a, a lot to do with the articulation of the violence that we're talking about, both the physical, epistemic, structural, right? Uh, but of course, there's also the really important aspect of the geographical luck, or lack of luck, I don't know what you call it, uh, of the world's uh, hydrocarbon resources, the majority of them being located in the Middle East and North Africa, right? Um, and so, the extent to which the hydrocarbon-based global energy systems dominated by North Atlantic firms operating under capitalist constraints have come to depend on insecurity in the Middle East to achieve relative profitability. So I'll unpack that a bit, right? So, right, the thing I want to get at is this idea, right? So we hear this idea that we have oil security alliances with the Middle East. Right? So we protect the Saudis, they give us oil, right? Uh, and I don't think it's actually accurate. I think it's an oil for insecurity alliance. I'm going to talk about why that's the case, right? So oil for security, right? So Toby Craig Jones, uh, a wonderful historian, uh, but unfortunately, I think he falls into this trap of sort of perpetuating this myth of the oil for security regime, right? And we hear this a lot 
Um, I was going to play a video, but I think I'll skip that because I don't know if the audio would work. Right? But you hear this a lot. Right? So the United States uh, is unfortunately allied, uh, especially today, to uh, dictatorships like the Saudis, the Emiratis, right? because, because of oil. Like, we don't really want to, but we have to. It's, you know, it's sort of this anguished, tragic view of world politics, right? Uh, these unfortunate alliances, that sort of thing. So what's the problem with oil for security theories? Well, where's the evidence? So Bob Vitalis, if you know his work, uh, he's um, famous for a book on Saudi Arabia, recent, more recently for a book on race and international relations theories, right? Uh, but he seems to be posting, I think, more on Facebook than anything else. Uh, so friend, go friend Bob Vitalis on Facebook, and you can see bits and snippets of a forthcoming book uh, in which he refuses to uh, respond to my efforts to bait him into an argument. Um, so really, the question here is, where's the evidence, right? So we have the famous uh, image of FDR and uh, the founder of Saudi Arabia you know, sitting uh, on the Great Salt Lake in the middle of the Suez Canal, right? And this is where the, the famous alliance was forged, right? Uh, well, the problem with that, uh, according to Vitalis, is there's no evidence, right? We have no standing alliance with Saudi Arabia. Uh, we have, there's no evidence that this sort of quid pro quo even exists, right? From, you know, you can find like plenty of clips of, you know, Ronald Reagan or um, Obama saying how, you know, great the Saudi regime is, right? Uh, but is there evidence that there is an explicit oil for security deal going on? There might be a lot of sort of implicit evidence, but at least as far as Vitalis goes, right, and Vitalis is more of a diplomatic historian than anything else, right, there's no evidence, right? Uh, the other thing to think about is, uh, well, why is the United States supported Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, Israel, Turkey, and Pakistan almost as much, if not more, than the oil-producing states, right? Uh, not counting Egypt, Morocco received more uh, arms and aid than any other African country during the Cold War. Right? Why was that? Well, ma mainly to fight the war in Western Sahara, uh, <coughs> But uh, the United States has invested a lot in non-oil producing countries, right? So you have to think about uh, something else possibly going on, right? Uh, if the US had oil for security deals, especially in the early Cold War, uh, they don't make sense in terms of energy politics because uh, when the United States was literally helping build the Libyan states, uh, the Saudi states, right? Uh, even Iraq to a degree, right? This was a period when the United States was still energy independent. Right? So there's no energy dependence. Right? The United States begins to see uh, declines in oil production in the 70s. And the, the point at which the United States actually begins to import more oil from, from abroad is the 1990s. Right? So is it really this, this straightforward energy relationship? Right? And uh, the United States in Libya, uh, getting to some of my recent research, right, was you know, helping create the Libyan state in the 1950s before oil was even being uh, produced in that country, right? So again, like, what's, what's really going on? Is it an explicit oil thing, right? There's also the question of, like, <laughs> oil for security wasn't very good for the Iraqi, Libyan, or Iranian monarchs either, right? Uh, it actually seems to have backfired in a very strong way. Uh, and Libya, when the coup happened in 1969, was exporting as much oil as Saudi Arabia. Libya was actually more thought of as, the, you know, this sort of linchpin. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at the diplomatic correspondence, uh, the United States wasn't really freaking out about the coup in Libya. Uh, they were sort of uncomfortable with the pro-Palestinian sentiments of 
you know, Gaddafi, but that was sort of it, right? They're like, yeah, oh, we can work with this guy, right? He's just another Arab dictator, uh, if you go look at the diplomatic record, right? So again, also the question of, right, what security is security for whom, right? So oil for security, well, the region's only grown more and more insecure, right? Uh, and if oil security is just pure realpolitik, why is it that we're only allied to certain kinds of regimes, right? We've never had an oil for security arrangement with post-revolutionary Libya under Gaddafi, right? If this is all realpolitik, why don't we have uncomfortable alliances with radical Arab republics, right? Uh, we don't have an oil for security deal with Algeria. Uh, we don't, certainly don't have one uh, with Islamic Iran, right? So what, what's going on, right? And then think about, is oil for security even necessary? This is one of the things that's often said, right? So we have to be in the Middle East because it's necessary for the global economy. Well, China, in the last 20 or 30 years, depending on how you measure it, has achieved the most spectacular economic transformation in the history of the world without invading, occupying, or otherwise bullying the Middle East in any sort of military way. Right? Uh, now, you could say they've piggybacked on the United States' role in the Middle East, but uh, I don't buy that argument. We could get into it. Uh, in the discussion, but I would say um, that it's not even clear that oil for security is necessary. Uh, and I would even argue that the United States would be better off if we just nationalized our oil companies, right? And, and this is why, right? One thing you have to think about with oil is there's a myth of the scarcity, right? Uh, peak oil, right? Peak oil theories tend to peak when oil prices are high. That's the interesting thing about peak oil, uh, is that it's driven not by you know, geological reality, it's driven by uh, the price of oil, right? So if you wanted to publish a book on peak oil, the idea that we're running out of oil in 2008, you could probably find a publisher. Uh, try to do that now. <laughs> try to write a book about peak oil when prices have been flat uh, for several years running. Right. Um, so according to Mitchell, right, uh, not a geologist, but a very interesting man, um, oil is the second most abundant liquid on the planet, right? So that, that creates a different kind of economic dynamic. Right? Uh, the problem with oil is there's too much of it, right? So if you have too much of a commodity, right, you have to think about how are we going to create uh, a system of profitability for a commodity if there's just too much of it, right? Well, you have to uh, do what the oil companies did uh, for the first half of the 20th century, which is form a de facto cartel and uh, restrict production. Right? And that even includes uh, not exploring certain countries, like, or having explored countries, keeping them in sort of your back pocket for a while. Uh, and I even read recently that oil companies tend to only look five years out. Like you might think that these are like really uh, super long-term thinking kinds of companies, uh, but too much exploration would indicate how much oil there is on the planet, and that would be bad for prices. Right? So oil companies tend to not explore as much as they could. Right. So profitability uh, became, uh, was controlled, at least for the North Atlantic oil firms, right? not the state-run companies like in the Soviet Union or something, right? uh, through cartels and collusion. Right? Uh, the problem here, the crisis that we begin to, begin to see in the 1950s, 1960s, right, is that the producer states want a bigger piece of the pie. Right? So they either want more of the profits, or they want direct control over the oil infrastructures themselves, right, as a part of a nationalization development sort of approach, right? Um, and so uh, you first see this in 
Venezuela, Mexico, and then it begins to happen in the Middle East, first as profit sharing, but soon as nationalization, right? Algeria kind of breaks the, the taboo uh, to a degree on that when they get into, they get into it with the French, right? So here's the crisis, right? There used to be a me mechanism by which oil scarcity was produced, and that was by restricting supply through a cartel. Right? The crisis of the 60s and 70s is that control of oil is no longer in the hands of those companies, the Seven Sisters, as they're, they're often referred to. Right? Uh, so how is profitability going to be achieved? Right? And here I'm getting into a theory about capitalism profitability. I can get into it in the comments, but I'm going to be talking about relative profitability. Right? And that's going to be an important uh, factor. I can explain it uh, if you want in the comments. Right? So here's an interesting set of correlations. Right? So differential returns on equity in the Fortune 500, these are the major oil companies in the world. As you can see, leading up to the Six-Day War, they're in a kind of crisis. Uh, because the relative profitability versus other kinds of industries in North Atlantic capitalism uh, was not as great. Right? But the Six-Day War and then more importantly, the October War start to demonstrate the effect to which, and of course the, there's the Arab oil embargoes, as they're called, right? And Mitchell argues that they weren't embargoes at all. But the idea is basically that insecurity in the Middle East, where most of the world's oil happens to be, becomes an important market condition for producing relative rates of high profitability for oil companies, right? So if you're a capitalist oil company, right, you have to like, you have to make a profit. And if you want to make the shareholders happy, you have to make more profit than other sectors, right? Uh, I'll show you in the, the final slide, uh, Exxon just slipped off for the first time ever, S&P is Standard & Poor's list of the 500 top companies, right? So they're out of the top 10 for the first time in history, right? And we'll get to why that might be happening. But so what Knightson and Bichler, Bichler have shown us here, these two economists, is the strong correlation between increasing rates of conflict in the Middle East and high rates of profitability. And once the United States decides to invade Iraq in 2003, international oil companies experience a wave of profitability that's unprecedented in the last 50 years. Uh, now, there's been a huge downturn Right, so this is going to become kind of tricky from our argument, right? Since 2014, uh, we see international oil companies also entering a period of unprecedented low differential profitability. Uh, and that's going to be important as well. But uh, what's, what's happened is that from the 1970s onward, conflict in the Middle East has become an important aspect of producing profitability in the oil industry. So permanent war in the Middle East, right? Um, this wasn't just a solution to a crisis of profitability for oil companies, right? This was also a solution to crisis, a political crisis uh, for the United States, for the North Atlantic world, right? This crisis is in part military, right? The West had uh, what two scholars have referred to as a comparative advantage of violence uh, that they used to colonize the world. Uh, Korea, Algeria, Vietnam, many other examples demonstrated uh, that that comparative advantage of violence no longer existed. Uh, and so uh, what is the West going to do uh, to control the world if direct intervention isn't going to work anymore? Imperialism doesn't work, colonialism doesn't work, intervention doesn't work, 
what, what are we going to do? So that's the crisis in the 70s militarily. Politically, right, there's also a lot of challenges at the home, the, the excess of democracy, right, uh, new social movements, global 1968, that sort of thing. But there's also challenges in the post-colonial world. I was gonna show you this video, it's really great, uh, with the uh, Saudi oil minister, where he's, it's in the, during the, the oil embargo, and he basically, you know, the guy says, what do you want? He said, well, we want, we want Israel out of the occupied territories. Uh, and the guy's like, well, aren't you trying to change geopolitics? And she says, yes, <laughs> like, you know, like, duh, like that's what we're doing, right? So this is also a political crisis for North Atlantic hegemony, right? You have the idea of the new economic order uh, being championed by Algeria, things of that sort, but also the, the wave of nationalizations in the oil industry, right? Um, and the, the economic crisis that we often refer to that gives rise to neoliberalism, right? So the end of the 30 glorious years, after World War II, right, Keynesianism doesn't seem to work anymore. You have a contradiction, stagnation, and inflation, right? Nixon's like, ah, oh, we don't need the gold standard anymore, right? So it's just economic crisis throughout the entire 1970s, right? Uh, that's, of course, the acute crisis, right, for oil companies is the loss of control over their oil infrastructures. So permanent war in the Middle East, right? Uh, so how did, how did a permanent war in the Middle East address right, this crisis of Western hegemony? Well, we've talked about how it addressed the economic crisis facing the oil companies, right? Because it helped restore relative rates of profitability, right? The U.S. policy, right? Uh, there was also a shift in strategic thought in the United States, right? If we can't use direct intervention, we're going to have to outsource to local proxies, and we're also going to have to uh, use balancing, right? Regional balancing. Right. So if you look at why did the United States think that Morocco invading Western Sahara, taking it from Spain, which was in control of the territory at the time, why did the United States think that was a great idea? Kissinger uh, explains it in terms of the Algerian-Moroccan balance. Right? Algeria had become too strong. It had bought too many weapons with its oil money. We wanted to return the balance. Well, what does balance mean? It actually means instability. It's kind of, a, uh, I don't know, maybe it's a kind of new think sort of expression, right, to call it balancing, what you're actually talking about is instability, right? Uh, so permanent instability between Morocco and Algeria. Uh, Libya, right, had uh, amassed an incredible amount of weapons in the 1970s, mostly Soviet, though also French, right? So war in Chad was used to balance out uh, Libya's dominance, right? And so you begin to see this pattern, right, the structural pattern throughout the Middle East, right? This is called the Nixon Doctrine. Uh, and Salem Yaqub has a great book on this uh, about US policy in the 1970s, right? Uh, Kissinger even sort of explains these sort of things, right? So on the one hand, like how do we, you know, how do we maintain power in the world? Uh, you know, this is sort of the, the Vietnam crisis where, you know, military, overwhelming military might doesn't seem to work. The United States dropped more tonnage of bombs on Southeast Asia than was dropped in the entirety of World War II, and yet we still lost, right? So we can't, we can't bomb our way uh, into victory, right? Someone should tell the Saudis that in, in Yemen, right? Um, so what are we going to do? Well, we're gonna to have to control the world through different means, right? Uh, and those different means are going to be uh, this archipelago of balancing, which is really just an archipelago of instability, right? So regional balancing, the Middle East as a permanent structure of conflict, 
this structure begins to emerge, again, I argue in the 1970s, right? And we begin to see a lot of very um, protracted conflicts, um, a lot of sort of, you know, how is it that Libya has somehow managed to continue to be a pariah state, and yet the pariah uh, was killed in 2011, right? So why, why do these arrangements, these relations, these patterns, why are they, why are they so durable, right? And I would argue that they, they serve very important political and economic functions, right? Uh, one of the important things here is not just sort of, you know, priming conflicts, right? Arms sales, that sort of thing, but also preventing peace, right? Uh, there's been a UN mission in Western Sahara since 1991, right? It was, according to its original mandate, supposed to last nine months, hold a referendum on independence, and then get out, right? And it's still there. Of course, the most famous one is the Israel-Palestinian conflict, right? How, how peace has been very close on a number of occasions, but then, then backed away, right? And with recent news coming out of uh, Netanyahu's office, things are about to get even worse. But of course, hypermilitarization, I think, is, the, is also one of the keys here, right? Uh, the, the level of arms imports spending in the Middle East is just doesn't compare to any other region in the world. Right? So if you want to create a regime of permanent instability based on permanent war and deferred peace, right? well, you, gotta have the, you have to have the, the wherewithal to make that effective. Right? So again, some statistics uh, we should all be familiar with as Middle East scholars, but it's good to remind us um, right, that we have this tripling of arms spending throughout the 1970s fueled by increasing oil prices, which also helped uh, restore the profitability of oil companies, but also made the Middle East an intensively armed place um, that also helped fuel regional conflicts. Right? The Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s is perhaps the deadliest conflict of the post, uh, or one of the deadliest conflicts, perhaps the most since the post-World War II period. Uh, and this, of course, continues into the present. Right? A third of all arms imports worldwide uh, went to the Middle East and North Africa. Right? The North Atlantic world is the dominant supplier in that case. Right. Um, now, privatization of military arms sales was also a key uh, to the relative profitability of arms manufacturers, right, who were also in a kind of state of crisis in the 1960s. Uh, when the United States begins to signal that it's going to withdraw from Vietnam, uh, the arms industry, again, if you look at the, the literature uh, within that, they also begin uh, to kind of freak out uh, about well, where are their profits going to come from. So a very interesting innovation in the 1970s is this idea of private arms sales, which really wasn't uh, a huge aspect, right? Arms companies had long uh, subsisted on the largesse of the state, uh, but then in the 1960s, 1970s, something interesting happens, which is that they begin to sell uh, around the world, often with support of the United States, right? So I like to think of, uh, you know, we give Israel and Egypt uh, multi-billion dollar packages uh, to secure the 1979 Camp David Peace Accord, right? Well, that's really great, but that really just is jobs in the United States, right? Because that money, a lot of it has to be spent on U.S. military weapons. So if you want to think about U.S. aid to Israel and Egypt is it's really kind of a subsidy program for you know, guys working in helicopter factories in Arizona. Okay. So um, that's, the, that's the theory. Uh, questions we might have today is, um, you know, why do we see, oh, the one on the right's really hard to see. Uh, why do we see these patterns uh, of violence in the Middle East, uh, and yet 
we see uh, a period of decreasing profitability in the international uh, oil sector. Well, here the, here the fracking uh, issue really comes into play, the fact that the United States is now, again, one of the world's top uh, producers of hydrocarbon energy. Uh, and I think it was really interesting. You can't see this as much uh, on the right, uh, but there was a flash oil crash uh, two days ago uh, based on a tweet. So the price of oil drops, uh, not a huge amount, right, within, within the sort of range that it's been sort of hovering at in the 60s, right? But the, it's just, it's a pure straight drop, right? So anyone guess what that, what caused oil to like that two days ago? I told you last night. The announcement that John Bolton uh, was no longer the national security, that he had resigned or was fired, I'm not sure that. Um, so why would the price of oil tank, not really tank, but why would the price of oil, why would traders, right, or people who are investing in future profits of oil, right, why would it go like that? Well, uh, clearly the, the oil for insecurity regime is alive and well, right? John Bolton, I think, is one of the strong, even if he didn't call it that, right, uh, because the, he's basically the architect of the Venezuela policy pushing for sanctions on Iran, right? And we're in a very weird kind of period where uh, Iran and Venezuela, two major oil producing countries, can be under one of the, you know, the tightest sanction regimes, and yet the, the price of oil uh, is not going up, right? So, um, and I think the markets are actually sensitive uh, to this reality, that we got rid of one of the most hawkish people in the White House, all of a sudden the price of oil dropped, right? So again, I think there's uh, evidence that the oil for security things going on, right? Uh, but we also have to think about this new reality of fracking. Um, but what does this bode for the Middle East in the future, right? Well, clearly to get oil back up to $100 a barrel, which a lot of countries would really like, would take a lot of conflict uh, in the world, right? Especially uh, as we transition, hopefully, from uh, a hydrocarbon-based energy systems to different energy systems. All right. for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CIMAT newsletter at www.cimatmaghreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.